Thanks, Rhonda. Great, great reading. Happy belated birthday. Well, um, I wonder if you, you know, if you've spent enough time in church, you've sort of heard this line before. Well, look, the guy's a Christian, or the gal's a Christian. They're just not, they're just not walking with the Lord right now. Have you heard that? Look, they, they accepted Jesus as Savior, like, you know, when they were 8 or 9 or 10 or 13 years old, but, oh, you know, it's been 10 years or 20 or 30, but, I mean, they're, they're a Christian. Oh, okay, well, how so? Well, I mean, you know, because they, there was once upon a time when they, 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 got, they went to a camp, they went to the Blue Mountains, and they prayed, and... They felt really bad, and but I mean, you know, of course now they're you, you sort of they're not even trying to follow God. They they don't really know if they even believe in Him anymore. But they're a Christian. Have you heard that before? What do you think about that? Well, what's what's missing from that? Well, there's a stack of things missing. But for one thing, it's this idea of repentance, right? Repentance. Today's passage is fascinating in that we see God coming to His people through the prophet Samuel, through the judge Samuel, and you see God delivering His people, but it hangs on something, doesn't it? It's contingent upon whether they repent or not. And as the Lord saves His people... What do they do? They praise him. They raise Ebenezer, right? And so, look, though we're so far removed from that, they, these principles, friends, couldn't be closer to home today. If the Lord has granted you salvation, if you have repented of your sins, you should be thanking God, and, and your life will look different you will be raising Ebenezer in your life, so to speak. And so this is a fantastic passage um, that is, uh, I'm really excited to look at. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll unpack it together. But before we do, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time. Gracious God, we, we come now in all different places. Um, Lord, some have come here and their minds are on a hundred different things. Some don't want to be here. Um, Lord, some are ecstatic. Some are hungry. And we pray that through this thing called preaching, through the voice of a mere man, would you conduct that divine dialogue in our souls that we would discover yet again that you are our teacher ultimately. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. So I, I think it'd be fair to say that, so we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, although it's just the book of Samuel, but um, I think it'd be fair to say that there's three main characters that, there's lots of characters in Samuel, but there's sort of three. If you had to sort of boil it down, there's three main characters. There's Samuel, there's Saul, and there's David. That said, given the fiasco that happened last week, you remember? The ark being captured, right, going into enemy territory, Hophni and Phinehas. But that whole fiasco, where was Samuel? Well, he's, he was MIA, right? I mean, sure, we've, we've heard a lot about 
the story surrounding his birth with his mom, Hannah, and we saw him in the temple or in the tabernacle as, as a little boy and, and how God spoke to him. But last week, he seems to just gone missing. Well, this week, he's back. Except here's the thing. It's been 20 years since we've left off here. 20 years. When, when we read in the seventh chapter of Samuel, it was a long time. Can you see that in the seventh chapter? 20 years that the ark remained in kiriath Jerim. 20 years is a decent chunk of time. And it was during these decades, during those 20 years, that even though that the, the ark is back, right? It's no longer in enemy territory. The ark of the covenant is now back in the promised land, except what's going on? God's people have gone off the rails. It's just like the book of Judges. They are seduced by the attractiveness of the foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, you might hear that and think, guys, look at the great deliverance that happened. Look at how the ark went to enemy territory and Dagon was there prostrate before the Almighty, right? I mean, come on, look at the, the exodus and all the things the Lord has done and and really, you're going to go after these false gods? Come on. Well, let's, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. All right? If you lived in an agrarian society, your entire livelihood was based upon the weather. Okay? So just picture that for a moment. Your entire livelihood. If it doesn't rain, like if you experience a drought, I know we've had you know, droughts here in Australia, but if you experience a drought, well guess what? Your crops die out right along with your animals, which means you go belly up, right? You're bankrupt. Far worse than any, you know, sort of inflation rate. Your very survival was contingent upon the weather. So coming back to this thing about this drought scenario, imagine one day you look around on your street, so to speak, in your neighborhood, on your suburb, and you notice that your fellow, fellow Canaanite neighbors are praying. They're going to this temple, and, and their way of praying and worshiping is very, very explicit. But they're praying. They're very committed. And, they're, and, and you know, they're, they're constantly praying all the time for rain. Well, you want rain as well, right? And so they're praying but they're not praying to God, mind you. They're praying to the storm god, Baal. And Baal had a mistress, Ashtaroth. Now, as you witness these pagan neighbors of yours going to the temple, there on their front yards, you know, praying to Baal, praying to Ashtaroth, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of love, you start to think, Oh, they're a bit nuts, right? I mean, I, I, good thing, I, I, I can't relate to that. But then, then you notice something. They've got loads of money, these pagan neighbors. And they go on nice holidays. And they've got plenty of livestock and lots of kids to help around the house and 
let's be honest. They seem happier than you, don't they? You're just trying to get through life. You're kind of grumbly. Ask your wife. She'll tell you that. But, you know, these pagan neighbors of yours, they're flourishing. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're a good utilitarian Westerner, right? So what are you going to do? You're not going to go full bore. You're not going to go full-hearted devotion to, well, to anything really except for yourself. But, but you're, you're going to go full, you know, you're not going to give your full-hearted devotion to, to this Baal God because you know that'd be wrong. But maybe, oh, maybe throw a little prayer out. Maybe offer a little prayer out to Baal every now and again, just in case. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. We, we know that. We know that. But maybe throw up just, just a little prayer out there to Baal. Maybe go, go to the temple every now and again. After all, He is the storm God. You don't want to, you got to provide for your family, right? You, you don't want your crops to die. I mean, you know, you know, you know of course, you know, it's going to be like 80%, maybe 80% God and 20% Baal. God understands. So, so just, just, a little, just offer up a little prayer every now and again. And, and who knows, maybe Baal will, will send sunshine your way and rain. Remember, he's the storm god. So it makes sense. Make, the, does that sort of put you into the skin of these people? So that's what's happening here, friends. That's what's going on when we pick up the story. It's been 20 years that the ark has been in unfamiliar territory, albeit back in the promised land, but unfamiliar. It's not Shiloh anymore. 20 years of Israel worshiping this storm god. And as a result, the Lord allowed the Philistines to oppress them. They've been under the thumb of these wicked people for two dark decades. They've actually entered into the territory that God had promised them. They're deep now into, in, you know, you know how you say behind enemy lines? Well, that's, that's what they would say. We're, we're now in Israel's territory and claiming it for our own. In fact, just to make sure that we're going to keep these people under our thumb, we're not going to allow them to have a blacksmith. So if they want to sharpen any, you know, anything, they need to come to us. And we're not going to allow them to gather in large crowds either because that might mean they're, they're going to assemble themselves for war. And we're going to tax the heck out of these fools. So Israel is feeling it. They're doing it tough. God's people are struggling. And finally, after 20 years, all of this reaches a breaking point where there wasn't a dry eye in the land. Everyone's upset. Everybody's crying. Everybody's belly aching. They feel really bad. I mean, they feel really bad about their rebellion. They're crying their eyes out. Can you see that at the end of verse 2? The house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Can you see that? And it's here as they're crying their eyes out, 
that Samuel comes out of the shadows, if you like, not with a sponge, but with a scalpel. In essence, he says, oh, you feel sorry about about your sin, do you? I've been hearing a lot of belly aching and lamenting over sin as I've sort of done my little circuit and doing my rounds. There's plenty of wailing I've I've been hearing by moving around and around. But look, I know you're crying. If you're really serious about this, prove it. Prove it. Stop bawling your eyes out and do something. Chuck your idols in the bin. Turn to Yahweh with all your heart. Look at verse 3. It's exactly what's going on, friends. He says this in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see that there? If you guys are genuinely turning to God, then it needs to be from the heart. And there should be some tangible evidence of it as well, mind you. And when that happens, when that happens, God will deliver you. God will give you the victory. It's fascinating how different, it's chalk and cheese, isn't it, when you compare Samuel to Hophni and Phinehas. How different are their ministries? I mean, remember, they tried to bring victory for Israel by using the ark as a magic box. You remember that? Hophni and Phinehas try to bring victory by bringing the ark, whereas Samuel brings victory by bringing Israel back to the Lord. You see the difference? You understand? It was the movement of their hearts, not the movement of the ark that made all the difference. Genuine repentance, dear friend, is from the heart. It works its way from the inside out, not the outside in. It works its way from the inside out. Repentance involves far more than feeling sorry about your sin. You know, most people are sorry they got caught, right? Sorry they hurt someone. Sorry they looked bad. But true repentance begins by being sorry that you've offended God Almighty. You're sorry over the wickedness behind your sin. And you actually turn from it and return to the Lord in obedience from the heart. Notice the word hearts repeated twice in that little verse. You see it there in verse 3? If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. 
Isn't this exactly what Jesus was banging on about in the Sermon on the Mount again and again? If you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's the inside, the real you. Because our hearts are prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Repentance, dear friends, is a matter of the heart. And it moves to action. Repentance is a matter of the heart. Remember, it goes from the inside out. And there'll be tangible evidence of it. If you look in verse 4, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord, notice, only. That's the key. God's people are to serve him exclusively. You shall have no other gods before me. There's a massive difference, friends, between feeling sorry about the impact that our sins have caused and actually repenting of our sins. Israel not only feels bad, but does something about it. So verse 5, Samuel says, let's get everybody together at Mizpah. I'd like to formalize this, this renewed relationship with the Lord, friends. And it's here where they, to their credit, they really take things seriously. They, first, they, they fast, and they didn't, they didn't drink water like it was just any old, any old day. They pour the water out, right? Pour it out on the ground, maybe as a way to symbolize a total dependence upon God. Whatever the case, everything seems to be going according to plan. Samuel comes, repent. They do. Now come gather. Let's renew this relationship. They do. The people respond in all sincerity. But then, but then, instead of their situation immediately improving, well, circumstances seem to get worse, don't they? When news gets out that they've assembled themselves, the Philistines catch wind of this and get the impression, oh, Israel's marshalling their troops. They're getting ready to fight. Or the Philistines think, well, since they're all gathered together, let's just exterminate them in one fell swoop. Whatever the case, there is God's people gathering in repentance, yet the enemy comes to attack. It's kind of the last thing you'd expect. But the, uh, the enemy friend will often come at you the fiercest when you are closest to God. Notice verse 7. Notice verse 7. Now, now when, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Isn't it interesting 
that there they are, repenting, obeying the prophet, and yet it looks like now they're going to cop it. I wonder, friend, if those of you maybe have just recently turned to Jesus here. Perhaps you've anticipated many of your problems in life to just disappear, only to discover that now it seems like things are getting worse in your life. Dear brother or sister, if that's you, trust the Lord. Deliverance in God's good providential timing is coming. He is a good God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, look at Israel. They've got nothing left. And they're not stupid enough to try to go grab the ark this time. Let's grab the magic box. Now, they've learned their lesson on that one. But they've got nothing left. Their resources are gone. They're utterly helpless to save themselves. So they cast themselves on the Lord. They're totally helpless. They realize we've got nothing. So what do they do? They go to the mediator. Pray to God for us. We're go- Otherwise, we're doomed. That, that's a gospel truth in there, friend. You, you, you understand? You come to the end of yourself, your own morality, your own goodness, and you say, I am utterly helpless to save myself. I need, there's only one mediator, the Lord Jesus. You come to him, nothing in your hand, simply to the cross, you claim. That is it. Do you understand? It's not that bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. Do you understand? Bad people go to heaven trusting in Jesus alone. Bad people go to hell not trusting in Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus. Utterly helpless to save themselves. They throw themselves on the mercy of God. And and just, this is a fascinating scene. Just as Samuel is offering up the sacrifice, while the offering was still in progress, the Philistine troops are getting closer. They're marching forward. You can just picture it, right? You can just imagine them standing still, watching Samuel make this sacrifice as the Philistines keep getting closer and closer. Maybe they're starting to, you can almost hear some of the things they're calling, when we get you, we're going to, kids included, we're going to, we're going to kill you. You can just, and, and some of the kids are starting to cry. And some of the people are starting to get really anxious and think, this is, not, this, is not, this is not good. They're like just a few meters away now. And just when you think all hope is lost, just when you think it's all done, but then, but then, God Almighty thunders from heaven. Beautiful. Look at verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before 
Israel. The Lord thunders against the enemy. Do you understand, friend? Do you, do you get it there? It's not. It's the Lord. It's not Baal, who's truly the God of the storm. It's God. It's Yahweh. He alone has the power to control the forces of nature. Hannah knew this, did she not? This is why she prayed in her prayer. Back in chapter 2, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Isn't it fascinating too, when you stop, but you stop and think about what's going on here. Technically, there wasn't a war. It's not like there was this huge battle necessarily that had happened. There was just thunder. Boom. But the thunder that gave confidence to the Israelites brought confusion to the Philistines. The Lord throws them into a panic. Then what does Israel do? They, they mop up and chase everyone away. It's incredible. I mean, just, just right on the, the knife's edge there of just being wiped out. And the Lord thunders from heaven. So how do you respond to something like that? What do you do? You don't want to forget something like this, right? Would the Lord intervene dramatically for his people? Well, that's why Samuel sets up a pile of stones so that they don't forget. He calls it the rock of hope. That's what Ebenezer means. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, right? They're totally humbled and did not enter into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So the name of this memorial is, it's a confession, isn't it? It's rock of hope. It's, it's a confession of faith and trust in the Lord. I love how he says there, if you notice in your Bible in verse 12, he says, Till now, the Lord has helped us. Isn't that great? Till now, the Lord has helped us. This phrase not only reminds the people that their past deliverance has been by the Lord's hand, but they can go forward in confidence as they continue to walk with Him and depend on Him. Till now. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Looking at Christ and what He has done, how much more... Can the church of the Lord Jesus say that? Till now, the Lord has helped us. Friend, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, all of your sin, all the ways in which you've offended God, past, present, and future, are wiped clean. I mean, when, when you reflect on that, can you not sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer? Hereby thy great help I've come. Jesus sought me with a stranger, 
wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Oh, that day when freed from sinning. Are, are you looking forward to that? I am. I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how all sing thy sovereign grace. If you're a Christian, it's that, friend. God came to you in grace. You never would have chose God in a million years. If the Lord allowed you to live and walk on this earth for a million years, you would have hated him with all of your heart. It is only because God came to you in Christ by his sovereign grace and regenerated your heart that you know and love Christ. Yes, I'm excited about it. Now, good. Amen, that's true. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. So how do you respond in your own life to God's mercy? How are you responding now? If the Lord has saved you, how do you respond? Are you burying it under a bushel? Hiding it under a rock? Or do you want to tell people about it? When Jesus saved people in the Gospels, he says, go tell people, right? Sometimes he says don't because there's a reason for that. But, but sometimes he says, actually, go, go tell people what I've done in your life. Look, if, if, this is, if this is the greatest news in the world, if you really, do you believe it? I mean, if you really believe this, if God is gracious and has saved you, you want to share this. It, it, it shouldn't come as, oh, well, what if I lose a friendship? Really? I mean, that, that, should, that should just ride over any idea of a friendship. Oh, well, what, if, what if people get mad at me? What if I look too passionate like the American guy with the flannel up top? Or say, what, what if I look weird? That's what you're concerned about? When you think of eternity and you think of your sins being dealt with, that's what you're worried about? Looking cool? Looking too extreme? I, I mean, Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life, we'll lose it. You know, honestly, I hope you're uncomfortable here this morning. Take your uncomfortable Christianity and chuck it in the bin. It's useless anyways. We don't want it. We don't need it. We, we want what God's word says. And so now we see Samuel. There's an interesting place here because Samuel is, he's doing his circuits. And it's, it's in an interesting place in this narrative because well, the covenant God has shown his faithfulness to his people. All they have to do is say, Samuel, 
pray and he offers up an offering and they're good. Things seem to be going rather fine. We know back from Deuteronomy 17 that there, there's a promise of a king, but it's right now the Lord, they've, they're, if you can use this term, they're doing a dance and it's working. But next week, which is shocking, rather than say, well, we're going to continue to do this dance, they say, no, 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 we want a king. We don't want God as king, really. We don't want to trust him and his timing, even though the Lord has shown his timing, even if it's on the 11th hour, boom, the Lord has still kind of saved them, right? But we don't want that. No, 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 no. We want a Chris, Hem Chris Hemsworth-looking king, right? We, we want a bloke that's like head taller than anybody else. We want a guy that we can really do our dirty work for us, right? That's exactly what happens next week. It's just a shocking transition. I mean, here in our English Bibles, it goes chapter 8. But, this, you know, there wasn't chapters and verses in the Masoretic text, when, in the Hebrew text. All right, you just, just keep reading. And, and the very next scene is, here they say, well, we want a king. You have a king. You have a king. Can't you see it? What are you trusting in? That's what we're going to talk about next week. What king are you looking to? But for those of you that are in Christ now, friend, this is an opportunity great to reflect upon, to raise Ebenezer, to remember Christ's work on our behalf. So I'm going to pray, and for those of you that are baptized believers, this is an opportunity for you to participate in the Lord's Supper together as a church family. But let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now and are reminded yet again that the main thing is your Son who lived a life of full, perfect obedience and died in the place of sinners. And Lord, for those of us that have trusted in the Lord Jesus have had our sins dealt with at the cross. This is a, we thank you for this opportunity to celebrate as a church family together. We know that you are here in a special way, that your presence is with us as we gather and as we break bread. So we pray that you would align our hearts with you. We pray these things in Christ's name.